0: And once again, so easy. Search Ufy Video Lock, that's E-U-F-Y Video Lock, or visit eufyofficial.com slash video lock to see how you can gain complete control of your door.
1: Tis the season to shine with H&M. Discover the holiday collection and find fashionable pieces for your wardrobe or for under the tree. Get inspired and dazzle with this year's glam. From tuxedo styles, bow-detailed pieces, impressive prints, and more. From unforgettable looks to unforgettable gifts. With fashion finds to home decor, find it all at H&M. Treat your loved ones and yourself this season. Shop in-store or at HM.com. Thank you, thank you.
0: Gentlemen and guns, coming. Hey, guys. Do me a favor if you haven't already, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. Then go to Bert, Bert, com and subscribe to all my social media outlets or whatever. I don't know if subscribe is the right word, but you know what I mean. I'm really thinking about my YouTube page. That's what I want you to subscribe to uh, because I've been posting my daily vlog. Not daily. It's like bi-weekly. I think more comics should do it. And I think that in five years from now when every comic's got a vlog, you're going to be like, wow, I followed Bird at the ground floor. He was doing a vlog back when they were really pretty shitty these aren't shitty I'm learning about editing I'm learning about shooting and if you follow my vlog you will learn about my weight loss December weight loss challenge which I'm down 20 pounds not to be a spoiler alert uh you will see me podcast with my friends you'll see me go to people's podcasts you'll hear clips from those podcasts you'll hear off-air stuff from those podcasts and I take them to live shows that I do I did uh, the goddamn comedy jam Sarah Silverman was there Louis CK was there although Louis is not in the vlog because I didn't want to deal with the hassle and uh, and you see me in assless chaps. You then also will learn about the battles I'm having with my neighbor's car and the stuff that I'm secretly putting on their car, like pinstripes. And, oh, the one I'm releasing today is pretty fucking good. Me and my daughters go in and put a pretty aggressive sticker on the back of their window. And they got us back last night. And I'm putting all of this on my vlog. So check out my vlog. Today's guest is an honor to have on the podcast. I got a text from Barry Katz, legendary manager Barry Katz asking if I if I was interested in having a conversation with him, and I was like, get the fuck out. Yes, sir, please. He uh, was on the 60 Minutes 2 in the Andy Rooney seat. He was a correspondent for 60 Minutes 2. He's been on every late-night talk show there is, including my favorite one that ever existed, Tough Crowd with Colin Quinn. He's had HBO specials. He's been in movies. He's done more one-man shows than you can ever throw a stick at. Uh he is a Boston comedy legend, and he's doing a show at the Wilbur Theater this New Year's Eve. If you want tickets? Go to the Wilbur.com. Ladies and gentlemen, put your hands together for Jimmy Tingle.
1: This is I hold him. One, two, three, four, one, two, three, four.
0: This is a nice space, Bert. Yeah, it's not bad. Um it's it's fantastic. Let me let me rephrase that. I make it sound I'm like brushing it off, but the truth is Yeah. It screwed us because now we don't want to leave the house, but we've outgrown the house. Yeah, like the family has. The girls, yeah, are uh, here. We go. I run video. I was literally as I'm setting this up. I was like, "How how different is something like this? Like, what, what was when was your first trip to L.A.? Was it to do Carson?
1: Uh, it wasn't my first trip, but
0: when was your first trip?
1: My first trip was uh, actually to do Star Search. Really? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Really? Yeah. What year, What year is that? that was like 83
1: 84
0: what was around I, there i hate to sound like i hate to do an interview and, and then say like like i'm so fascinated that you've you've been doing stand up since like what 80, the 80s yeah. 82 80 80 yeah yeah and so i'm are we on yeah we yeah rolling? yeah we're, we're rolling yeah cool. um and all i as, as i was setting this up i thought the um the change you've seen in entertainment and in comedy and in in every aspect of this business mm-hmm. For, it's just to like from from starting the clubs to dane cook uh, doing social media to mm-hmm. podcasting has got to be like i felt silly putting a camera in here and i was like I was that's like cool man I, but i was like i was like i was like one time you flew out to la to do carson like that yeah that's such a i mean that's so out of any experience i could ever have i feel like wow well i'll tell
1: you um yeah, when I first started, nineteen eighty. No, you know, we started in Boston, and there yeah. wasn't really there was a scene there, but there wasn't an industry scene. So it was just people doing what they, you know, wanted to do. It was like the big challenge was getting on and doing five minutes and doing well, and then doing twenty minutes, and then getting paid gigs. As all these, you know, I was fortunate that I kind of caught the wave early on. Yeah, in the early eighties, where. There was an expansion of the clubs. People were, you know, clubs were opening around the country. If you could get, you know, 20, 30 minutes, an hour together, you could headline around the country. And so uh, that was, but everything was just, you know, it was the old-fashioned, you know, uh, three newspapers in the town or one newspaper per town. Three channels on TV. Three channels on TV. (laughs) Boston was the only show in town, actually. Really? Pretty much. I mean Johnny Carson was yeah. uh I mean for comics that was like the gold standard at the time, you know. Uh and um and Star Search was on, you know, Star Search was on in the early eighties. That was another vehicle for people to get on to do two minutes to the country. Do you, you remember know? what joke she did? Oh yeah oh yeah uh i can still do it, man because you know i i did a one-man show a few years ago and you've done a number of one man yeah, shows, right and i reenacted the star search bit and steve allen came to the show and he goes listen man don't throw that material out that's good <laughs> material he goes you can use
0: it and i'm thinking you can, thinking, re, you can re, re repurpose it now oh yeah people yeah, people yeah, these yeah. days
1: will oh yeah <laughs> i just actually i just did a um i occasionally speak in different places for recovery issues you know yeah. so i was playing i was speaking at a prison in, in Massachusetts, the Billerick House of Correction, and I'm doing Q&A with the inmates, you know, and one guy goes, who who are you on Star Search? Where were you on Star Search? Who are you on with? I said, I was on with uh, Evan Davis, and I think it was like 83, 84, maybe 85, and uh, I go, I'll reenact it for you. Nice to be here, everybody, Ed McMahon says. uh, Our next uh, challenger tonight is a comedian from Boston, Massachusetts. He admires Rodney Dangerfield and Richard Pryor. He sees himself in five years just writing, performing, and working. Let's put him to work right now. Please welcome Jimmy Tingle. Hey, everybody. Nice to be here tonight. I I drove out here from Boston, Massachusetts. I'm driving cross-country. I broke a few rules driving. Next thing you know, the police pull us over. What's the story, pal? Why'd you run that red light? I didn't see you, officer. <laughs> what are you, a wise guy? You got a license? Well, of course I have a license. I show him the license. He looks at a license, looks at me. He looks at a license, looks at me. This doesn't look like you. Well, let me see that. You're right. It's not me. <laughs> you got the wrong guy. <laughs> oh, man. I've been trying to get in shape, folks. My friend say you want to get in shape? Just lift weights, man. Lift weights. I'm saying lift weights. What for? Those things are heavy. <laughs> People tell me to jog. Get out there and jog, man. Jog, jog, jog. If you can jog one mile, you could jog the Boston Marathon. Calm down. I can't drive 26 miles without pulling over to hit a men's room. <laughs> People say, try the health food. You are what you eat. Really? I don't feel like a large Italian with everything on it. <laughs> Health food? I'm sorry, folks. I don't trust the store. As soon as you walk in, a man with the physique of this wire comes up to me to tell me that the vegetables look healthy. Yeah, the vegetables look fine. You are in some serious trouble. <laughs> Someone turns on the fan, you're in orbit. <clears throat> and people are walking around with T-shirts to say, go hike the canyon. Why don't you go home and smoke in bed, would you please? <laughs> They're selling stuff like seaweed. Seaweed. I go to the beach. I see seaweed in the water. I don't even go in. <laughs> now you want me to eat this stuff. I have a better idea. Why don't you come over my house? I'll let you mow my lawn. You can eat the piles.
0: <laughs> Thank you, everybody. Good night. Holy <laughs> crap. <laughs> Holy crap. That is fucking... That so, is... Ins- I, I literally, as I'm sitting through this, I'm like, that. Is, it's, it's in rote. But you know what's oh, yeah. amazing is... You know what's amazing is... those. That is pacing... That I borrowed from when I first started stand up, yeah. like that is pacing. Uh, I got like that 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 cadence you have yeah. is it's almost indoctrinated, and every guy that learns how to write a joke is almost watching. Yeah.
1: Yeah, well, you know what it was. A lot of it was the the atmosphere you developed in in the Boston atmosphere. I don't know you, how many times you played there. A couple times, but it's a but it's a, it's a it was a very fast the style that was developed was a very fast paced style. You had to be ahead of the audience. There was guys like Don Gavin and Lenny Clark and Sweeney, and you know even Steve Wright had like one joke after another. There was yeah. not a lot of setup time. There was not a lot of dead time. You know, um, and his of course he was completely different, but r- completely brilliant but it was just a different thing and the audiences were they were not they were um it was basically bar rooms you know and yeah. they say let's try this and put a microphone in there so a lot of the rooms were like that that you really had to uh be on top of the audience and ahead of them and keep them laughing because it was
0: easy to lose them no you but but in, in for people that claim to be comedy fans that listen to podcasts i don't think they understand th- there these were bar rooms they weren't comedy yeah. clubs right Right. They at were, th- at they this point, bummed. in comedy, there was no such thing as... I mean, they, they, I guess the improv was probably in New York. Right. The new, improv was in New York, uh, the
1: late 70s, I believe. Um, and the a comedy store was in L.A. And there were... You know, a handful of rooms, real rooms. But even when Leno started in the 70s, he and he started in Boston, there were no comedy clubs. He used to work the naked eye, strip yeah. joint, and the combat zone.
0: So when you say like a comedy scene, it literally is almost like the Revolutionary War. A bunch of like-minded gentlemen yeah. who got into an idea of this is what I want to do. There's nowhere to do it. and. You're the founding in the founding fathers of that scene. Yeah, well, Barry
1: Krumins actually came to Boston. He had been in he had, he's from Scandinavia, and he's uh, actually the star of a new film that Bobby Goldthwaite just yeah. made. Uh, Call Me Lucky, great film. I recommend it highly. Barry came to Boston. Um, he had done a lot of radio in in with Goldthwaite, and he had done some comedy in upstate New York. Him, Goldthwaite, Tommy, um, oh, what's his name? I can't remember. I'm blanking on his name. It, 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 Goldthwaite's great friend, uh, Tom, uh, Tom, Tom, Tom Cat. Yeah. Tom
0: Cat. I I'm blanking on his last name. Anyway, the voice of SpongeBob. Yeah. Tom Kenny. Tom, Tom Kenny. Kenny. Yeah. yeah. Oh, uh, You so, know what? It's so funny. I think I sat at a table and had dinner with him one night. Yeah. Uh, but I didn't. I was unaware of who I was sitting next yeah. to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But those guys, K- Goldthwaite and
1: Kenny started in high school. They were like teenagers. Cremens was probably 23, 24. And Cremens wanted to do comedy. And he was real the visionary. And he came to Boston. And he... He founded this place called the Ding Ho. It was a Chinese restaurant in Inman Square. I grew up like two blocks from the place. That's how I fell into it. But anyway, Kremen started it, and all these people who wanted to try comedy started coming out of the woodwork. uh, Stephen Wright was at Emerson. Dennis Leary was at Emerson. Paula Poundstone, uh, Mike Donovan, Mike McDonald, a lot of – you know the the early kind of founding fathers of it, and yeah. they had five, ten, twenty minutes, you know, and then the comedy connection was all Paul Barkley and Billy Downs was actually their one, yeah, yeah. A yeah. Times. That was uh, Boston proper, and that was just like one little room, and so anyway, it that's how the scene started, and so and it was, you're right, it was bar rooms. The Ding hole was formerly the Oaks Cafe, which was a place that my Friends, my best friend Dave Parsons, his father was the bartender there, and it was one of the first places we ever got to drink in because we were, you know, it was like in the early seventies, and the drinking age just turned eighteen, so you could go in there. But it was a men's, it was a men's bar, is what it was, and then it became the Ding Ho, was a Chinese restaurant. So anyway, you're right, there were just basically places that were trying out the comedy and then some places really established it like the comedy connection became a comedy room and the ding-ho became a comedy club and then other clubs opened up in the boston area stitches and nicks and uh It against sam's where barry katz started booking yeah that was that was all between 80 and 79 and 82 83 Holy cow. Yeah. And so the scene developed out of there and people didn't know what they were doing but the nice thing about it's like a podcast. You can have your podcast be anything you want and it, the territory's wide open. S- very similar to early stand up. There was no rules, especially being in a non-industry town like Boston. You know the f bomb was everywhere. Lenny. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah. you know, it was very unusual for people to be dropping the f bomb in public, and so people were like amazed by it and and they loved it. It was
0: just it just um, really hit home with with the audiences, and the audiences just came out of the woodwork. What with, with with where you see comedy these days with political correctness, where and like you can you can tell when someone crosses the line these days on stage, and everyone's like, "Whoa, that's edgy." Mm. What was what was edgy back then? Like, do you remember? Yeah, like... Yeah,
1: what was edgy? Um... You know, I, I don't know if anything was too edgy because there was uh it was a pretty wild scene. Um you know, it, it was seems like I mean Lenny worked. Lenny was like the kind of the spearheading it. So and he was he was very edgy. You know, Lenny was very edgy and he was um you know, he was good great with hecklers and really? you know, oh yeah, fuck you, fuck that, fuck your mother. I mean he was like <laughs> you know, he was you know, he was like <laughs> Crazy like that. And so people were, you know, pretty taken back by it. But it also, you know, it's a double-edged sword. You develop that, and it's hard for TV. Back yeah. then, there's no there's not cable. It's hard to do five minutes for national television, you know? It's hard to do get a, a set together. So people kind of developed on their own thing. But nothing was too edgy because the whole thing was so fresh. There was no real barriers. I mean, Richard Pryor was like sort of the gold standard and Rodney Dangerfield and... Uh, you know of course uh Lenny Bruce and George Carlin those guys you know so there was that that kind of level of oh this is what it could be yeah. you know in terms of comedy but you know after Richard Pryor's special came out in the early 80s man people were just blown away by that that one hour special and so everything was
0: open you know it was fair game everything was fair game did you did you did you contemplate moving out to LA at that time or were you like it's cuz i all i know about the boston scene is having played in boston is the crowds were electric like when you when you got in it's almost like they held you up to a standard you weren't ready to be held up to and and i remember hearing stories like colin quinn going up to boston for his first time (laughs) and being terrified yeah yeah
1: yeah you know colin actually became a good friend and um yeah it was you were following very strong acts like in the, back in the day, that the way they would host a show, the host was usually the strongest act on the show.
0: That was the same in New York, and then I came out to LA, and it was like, oh no, the host sucks. Everyone else d- doesn't want to host, and I was yeah. like, oh, that makes no sense. I was like, I'll host in a heartbeat. Yeah, but yeah,
1: hosting's great because you get stage time, you get to try things, and when it's not working, you bring up the next guy. Right? <laughs> go, All right, that didn't go so, but this next person's hilarious. Yeah. You know? <laughs> But you got all this stage time. So but like for example in the Ding Ho or the Comedy Connection, everybody the, the headliner was the host. So Lenny Clark had a night, Don Gavin had a night, Steve Sweeney had a night, DJ Hazard had a night, Barry Cremens had a night, Jack Gallagher. The only guy that never hosted was Steve Wright. Because yeah. he was so different and he really wasn't the host type. But that's how we started and so and so that you got a lot of stage time, but you had to follow the host. So you didn't have like a Uh, uh, somebody who had been doing it a year, you know, hosting, and then somebody who's been doing it three years, middling for 20 minutes, and then somebody who's doing it five or six years or 10 years, whatever, headlining, it was more like the guy who's been doing it five years is the headliner, he's really good, he's going to open with a strong set, and the next act has got to do 20 to 25 minutes, and they have to be strong, and the next act has to be just as strong as those two, and the final act has to be just as strong. Uh, So there was a very even-tempered show for the most part.
0: Now, was it... it uh, was it every night? Were you guys doing it every night, or yeah, was it just, just about. Um, really?
1: Well, initially it was not every night, but what happened is the open mic scene developed in, uh, you know, in, in on the Wednesday nights. Lenny Clark had an open mic night on Wednesday nights, and uh, and then uh, and that scene was great because you they put like twenty people on, and all you had to do was show up and sign a list to get on. Yeah, and uh, you could go up and do five minutes, and you know that was. Um, that was really almost driving the scene in a certain sense because everybody could get up there and, you know, try. You could try. There was opportunity. That's the great thing about stand-up comedy, man. It just was an organic thing that came out of nowhere. It was unplanned from yeah. what I can tell. And it was like true uh, meritocracy in terms of getting on stage and, and getting laughs, and that's well, what you that, had to do. That
0: was the Boston scene. The Boston scene was is, and I don't know if I'm regurgitating what what I've – heard said a million times or if it's what i feel from watching and reading and, mm. and and just witnessing it as a kid but it seemed like men like it was men it wasn't and and, and it, nothing was too precious like it seemed like everyone That's took true. chances yeah not not, not yeah. sexist i mean not like in like there's no women i'm saying like they were no there were a few punch. women there were, a there few were men few that would yeah. punch it wasn't like artsy it was like men that would sit at a bar and make men laugh <laughs> you know like that's what I always I always got that vibe of like yeah. of like it's not. I think that was true I mean I think that
1: was true it was very male dominated there were some women that came out of there that were great Paula Poundstone oh Paula Poundstone's came, yeah. fantastic yeah but she it wasn't came out of there but Lauren Dombrowski like, another friend of ours yeah who has since passed a wonderful wonderful woman and great comic uh she came out of there but yeah it was but the scene I think stand-up comedy in general like many other professions were dominated by men whether it's lawyers doctors no, but I mean like, you know
0: like but I mean like not i didn't mean it like i I, I misspoke it was uh it wasn't guys wearing scarves yeah it was guys who had rough hands yeah like that's what you i felt like the comedy scene in boston and that's what i think it was it was
1: a pretty i would say you know blue collar uh yeah you know mentality, a lot of it. But but then there were people like, you know, Steve Wright and and Leary who went to Emerson and Leno who understood the concept of stand up comedy, who understood performance arts, who understood that. Yeah. But not everybody did but the thing about boston is an interesting town it's you got this great academic influence yeah. you got this historical influence right going back to the pilgrims and stuff and you got this political influence with the kennedys and it's a progressive state you know for the most part and you got these comics who were just you know, we had people from who grew up in Cambridge and didn't go to Harvard like myself and Lenny and you know Sweeney who grew up in Charlestown and working class neighborhood South Boston where Mike mcdonald- I mean George McDonald and his brother Warren were from and so you had this you know working class blue collar sensibility and the audiences were the same way you go into the audiences and you'd see maybe there's like a table from MIT and then there's a table from South Boston and then there's a table from Charlestown and there's a table of harvard students you know so the
0: audience had a lot of diversity in terms of the the background as well what a great way to develop talent is to be around crowds that are all uh, literally a melting pot of intelligence yeah of of work of what they do yeah i mean yeah and
1: there was a guy jonathan groff you might know him i know he's done really well out here in los angeles but he was a comic who was that harvard student at the time was coming down and doing sets at the ding-ho and so I, one of the ways people advanced was to get your own show, whether it was hoping, hosting an open mic night or, like, so, uh, you know, I was eventually... I, I actually became the daytime bartender at the comedy club. I fell in love with it the first time I saw it. I said, wow, here are all these people in their 20s who are making stuff up, yeah, completely making stuff up, going on stage and getting a reaction from the audience. And it was, like, something I had never seen before. And I just... I completely fell in love with the scene. I became obsessed with it. I, I said to Barry Cremens, I said, listen, you know, I did one open mic. I said, How, you know, do you got anything, jobs here? You know, I'll do anything. I'll sweep the floor. So I became the daytime bartender and the janitor and, uh, you know, whatever whatever needed to be done, which was wild. All uh, to get stage time. Oh Yeah, to get stage time, but to all, also to meet these comics and, you yeah. know, just immerse yourself in the scene and watch everybody. It was
0: it's Pretty such a white. great feeling, and I hope everyone gets to feel that once in their life is to be so passionate about something. Yeah, I worked the door at Barry's Club, the Boston Comedy Club. Did you? I worked the door and barked, and I have social anxiety good for you man so like I, getting out in the street and being like hey, hey brother you see a show? congratulations <laughs> yeah. cause you came
1: up like I came up yeah and that's that's like the best way it's like the equivalent of working in the mail room when they talk about you know the show business folks who become the head of some
0: studio he they, they started in the mail room yeah. in
1: 1931
0: you know oh I, I mean to this day people you know it's like you, and, you, and, you, and it's not you, you get to I got to see everyone's real personality yeah like you know like uh, I was talking to someone the other day about Jim Norton, and I don't see Jim on, on Opie and Radio anymore. I don't. I mean, I mean, I don't see him as that guy. I just see him as the same guy mm-hmm. who was smoking cigarettes back in the day. Yeah, who would just bullshit and wasn't trying to impress. and Was just hanging out. Yeah. Patrice, Jim, Bob Kelly. Yeah, uh, Brew like all those guys. I think it was a great way to come up. I'm really. What's interesting to me is that you took, you took a route that I think that I feel like. Nowadays is the standard route from every, for everyone, but you did it on your own, which is the one man show. Like I feel like nowadays everyone's trying to do a one man show in their act. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you go see guys and it's more long form. Yeah. But you took that route for yourself.
1: Well what happened was, you know, I um I was doing the scene, doing you know, the clubs and everything, did star search, did the tonight show with Johnny and How was the payoff after that? Did it change off. did it change your career? It did. I got an agent. I got a manager. Yeah. Um. It puts you on a... It definitely... I got work around the country. But my passion at the time was, um, you know, I just started going really in a political direction, P- politics and social commentary. That's what I was kind of passionate about you know and um i i sort of left when i was drinking and i quit drinking in 88 and so really yeah and that was sober for i've been sober for a while and that was awesome because that put my you know my a lot of my act was you know we should drink more (laughs) (laughs) we should work out less and drink more that was like my act in the early 80s yeah it just was and it killed because everybody in the bar is going, you're right,
0: brother. <laughs> and the bars love you. They're like, fucking bring this guy on.
1: <laughs> exactly. But when you get sober, for me, it just didn't work anymore. It wasn't authentic anymore. Yeah. It worked for a time. It wasn't authentic. But what was authentic is, you know, reading and trying to keep up with what's going on in the world and just taking that, you know, and so – so to, to to your point, yeah, The Tonight Show was great, but it wasn't greatly appreciated on The Tonight Show. I did one, Johnny gave me the big okay, the producer said that was excellent, start working on another one, but they never had me back. Really? And because it was, it was, it was heavily political. It was, and some of the issues I was talking about back then, they're still talking about now. May I give you one of them, please? I'm, I'm on the Tonight Show with Johnny. He's sitting over there. The other guest is Bob Hope. Okay, <laughs> so <laughs> I'm saying I'm going to give you two jokes, right? So I said, so I'm reading, folks, that uh, with the uh, Congress, Congress just voted against a seven-day waiting period to buy a gun. Now, Holy I don't. This is the Brady Bill, right? Back in the day, right? Holy. This is. I said. Now, I don't want to sound like a Quaker, okay, but is a week a long time to wait to see if Hinckley is qualified to own a gun? <laughs> I said, are people in that much of a hurry to get a gun that they're walking into gun shops saying, hey, 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 I am an American, I pay my taxes, I'm in an argument, I want a gun, I want it now. <laughs> just hold on, pal, just hold on, you're going to have to fill out a form, you're going to have to wait at least a week for the gun, a week, the guy will be gone in a week. I want to shoot him now. <laughs> I mean, a seven day waiting period to buy a gun and Congress is against it. Come on, will you, Congress? It takes eight days to get a phone. <laughs> it takes eight days yeah. to get a phone. <laughs> and at the time, it did. At the time, they would say, I want a phone. Stay in the house. The guy will be at your house within God, a week. Damn, I remember that. You know what I mean? And so that was one line,
0: but it wasn't that popular. I mean, but the, think the, of what side of history you're on. And they, now you start looking at everything shaking down. Right. I'm trying to put my head around what gun can what gun arguments must have been like in the 80s. Well, it was the same. It's very similar arguments. But you know, the
1: Brady Bill was named after Brady James Brady, who's Reagan's bodyguard, who got shot, and John Hinckley, obviously a huge loophole in the law. A mental person, a mentally disturbed guy, goes into a pawn shop, gets a gun, shoots the president. Yeah, you know, and so, but they had to fight eight years to get the Brady Bill finally become law, we to have a seven-day, you know, a background check on weapons, and it's prevented millions of people from getting weapons yeah. because of that thing. And then the other, one of the other jokes that I did that, uh, you know, it was, it was pretty, at the time, maybe a little bit on the edge, I don't know, but the Iran-Contra issue was... You know, this big scandal happened with the Reagan administration yeah. saying that Reagan had traded arms for hostages, had made a deal when Jimmy Carter was still president, made a deal with the Ayatollah to trade them arms for hostages, and then the hostages would be released the day he became inaugurated. So, it, and the scandal didn't break till like the mid 80s. And so, and the trial is going on. It's December of 1988. I'm on, I'm on yeah, 88. I'm on Tonight's Show with Johnny. There's Bob Pope, and I'm saying, So I'm reading that between Ronald Reagan and George Bush, between the both of them, they still cannot remember whether or not they sold guns to Iran. Mr. President, with all due respect to the White House, in the future, if you sell guns to people that take Americans hostage, jot it down. (laughs) and the place went
0: crazy and that
1: was the last thing i said on the tonight show with johnny (laughs) because
0: they were probably they they probably knew reagan personally i'm sure bob hope did i'm sure sure he
1: did did some golfing with with the reagan's and the bushes yeah but anyway so the so that so when cable happened in comedy central the reason why political satire exploded the way it did partially is because there were venues where you weren't tethered to network television standards and i'm not just talking about swearing i'm just talking about content
0: content yeah there was a famous story about uh johnny carson's son who committed suicide oh really and then yeah and there was this comic who had a joke i remember the joke i remember the joke to this day i heard it in my bed and they said and i only heard about this i think through a book i read in the uh, recently but that they had said to him don't tell the joke about suicide And he's like, yeah, but it's my closer. It's the best, but I have. And the joke was, um, I don't think I could commit suicide. Uh, What if you pick a building that's too tall, and when you scream, you don't have enough screams? So you jump, and you're like, ah! (laughs) 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 Like, uh, I think that was the joke, and he never got asked to go back on The Tonight Show. And I guess back then it was like one of those things where you're just like, well, fuck, you've done it. Yeah. You know, but now, like... Yeah. If you didn't play by his rules, you didn't Yeah, I don't know when
1: I don't know what year that was, but when they when I did it they they really vetted the set, you know. Really? Oh yeah, because you had to um you know, I used to open with the Iran-Contra joke, and, and Jim McCauley, the producer, goes, you can't open with, the, like, a joke about the president. <laughs> you got to open What's with What's so it, funny the, is that you know, they made jokes about the president all the time, but I guess yeah. anything that was serious, they didn't want to. I don't know. You know, Johnny had the license, and the hosts have the license, because, yeah, they'll make something about the president, but then they'll make something about Congress, and then yeah. they'll make something about, you know, the Democrats, and then something about the Republicans or whatever. But you don't have that license necessarily when you're the comic at yeah. least at that time but what i was saying is like when john stewart and colbert were, were able to do you know the show on uh, comedy central they could you know they had complete you know complete uh artistic freedom you know, do whatever and the audience it resonated so much with the audience
0: no did you were you one of the people that because um, i remember when i started there were people that seemed to have plans of how mm-hmm. they wanted their career to go yeah like I, I remember the whole thing was do a development set get to montreal Perform in front of Montreal, get a deal, have a sitcom. Yeah. That was it.
1: Yeah. My plan was, after I did the Tonight Show, I just obsessed about getting back on. They didn't want it, but I wanted to do that type of material. And I didn't want to do it in the clubs. They quit drinking. It was difficult to perform in the clubs. It's a different mentality. Yeah. The people are. It's date night. You know, they're having a good time. And I just was, but I saw Jackie Mason perform in 89 off on Broadway. And he did a show called uh, The World According to Me. And Jackie Mason had been in the Catskills for years. He was, you know, he had done Ed Ed Sullivan back in the 60s. And he actually was not asked back from Ed Sullivan. And I don't know what happened. But anyway, he just honed his craft and just did his thing for years in the Catskills. And he came to New York and had a one-man show on Broadway. And it was not like a Spalding Gray one-man show or Eric Bogosian or John Leguizamo, yeah. where they're doing characters in yeah. there. It was much. It was stand-up. And I said, I walked out of that place high because I watched a guy do ninety minutes into a packed Broadway house. People are paying a lot of money to see him. He was hilarious, and he was doing exactly what he wanted to do. And I said, I know what I want to do. That's what I want to do. Really? So a- after that, was that really, yeah, and you're I like- just locked into that you know I was never I just never went the sitcom route I didn't care that much about it it wasn't appealing to me Uh, movies weren't that appealing to me you know which in retrospect you know it would be nice to have a long (laughs) career of we've done done a bunch of acting yeah a little bit yeah but I mean not every you know people have different motivations what gets them up in the morning what they're passionate about and that was what I was passionate about and I just kind of went in that direction and just you know did that and and, and a lot of times it was difficult to get the one-person show because the venues didn't exist for it. You know, it's a theater thing. So it's not like a comedy club where you go where there's an audience already there. Yeah. And a theater, there's an empty theater, and you got to put people in it. So I got in the habit of renting theaters and producing the shows. Do it yourself, you know, and rent the theater and, uh, and you know, get the get the people in there. And, I'm, I mean, I did it off-Broadway in New York with Jack Rollins' Uh, Woody Allen's manager and Letterman's manager and yeah. one of the great, great managers of all time, sweetheart of a man, uh, passed away this year at, at 100 years old. Wonderful guy. Wow. Yeah, but he he worked with me in New York and came out of retirement to help me and we, we rented the uh, American Place Theater in New York and did a one-man show there. And then from there, got nice reviews in the New York Times and some other papers and was able to take that around and went up to Boston and basically rented... You know, rented a theater, the Hasty Pudding Theater at Harvard, and rented that out, and that brought in a whole new audience. Really? Yeah, because you have all these Harvard people who go to theater. You know, and I grew up in Cambridge, and we grew up a mile from the Hasty Pudding. No one in my neighborhood knew where the hell it was. (laughs) Yeah. So, but it was awesome because you're doing four shows a week, making more money than I ever made doing stand-up, because you're producing it. That means you're taking the risk. You're renting it out. You're hiring the publicists, buying the ads, yeah. doing the radio, hiring the tech people. You know, it's all your money. Holy cow. And then, and then performing it. And I'm working with this wonderful director who I'm actually going to see out here later on today, Larry Eric, who was just a fabulous guy who, uh, who worked with me. He was Irvin Arthur's cousin, actually. And Irvin Arthur is a great agent here the Irvin Arthur agency, but that was one of the great things that became out of The Tonight Show, getting an agent like Irvin Arthur, yeah. you know, who could book you around, book you up in Montreal and, and things like that. But, so a lot of it's been, you know, just being passionate about what you want to do, and the one-man show route was the road I wanted to now, go.
0: how do you develop from, how many one-man shows have you done? I want to say six? Uh, no, uh, three or four. Four? Yeah. Um. Now, how do you go from writing one one-man show to the next? Do you... Do you do that, I mean, it's been popular, like, Louie and Bill Burr have been like, scrap everything, start all over. Yeah. Which is That's cathartic. Great. It's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. It's a little stressful for Very admirable. Guys, guys like us who are not Louie and Bill. Yeah. And everyone's like, hey, man, like, people come to your shows, and they're like, how come you're telling, I, I heard that joke last time you were here. You're like, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. But I also told, like, 45 minutes worth of new stuff. Right. I'm not Bill and Louie. I'm not putting out hours every year. Right. But is that how you go about doing a one-man show? Yeah. Do you sit down and write it out? Like, you know for me it, it developed out of stand up and the
1: first one was Uncommon sense and that was about largely about quitting drinking and and the social issues of that day at that what time what made you quit
0: drinking you
1: know the last year um you know people that i was you know associates started dying you know people i was hanging out with and uh suicide murder overdose and uh and these are all people were on, in the scene indirectly in my realm of, you know, yeah. sphere of influence. And, uh, and it was a, you know, and people, good people, I mean, people going to jail and getting busted and it was a bad scene, you yeah. know, it, it, you know, alcoholism, you know, it just was a downward kind of a spiral after a while. It was fun. No, I, mean, I don't take anything away. I don't regret all that. It mean, was a lot of fun stuff, but if you've got the disease of alcoholism, it, it doesn't get better. It kind of gets worse over time. <laughs> yeah. And more jackpots and problems and trouble. And just the feeling of waking up. And even though you're doing really well in comedy, you can still be feeling horrible about yourself the next day, about trying to piece together the night. Where did I go after the gig? How much did I spend? Where's the car? Who did I talk to? What did I say? Yeah. Where the hell am I? You're waking up in strange places. Yeah. Sometimes waking up in jail. You know, and it was uh, it was just bad. It was just a bad, personally. And so I just wanted to get better. And, you know, you mentioned Colin Quinn earlier. Colin, you know, was one of the guys, was the first guy who said to me, him and Barry Katz actually said, you know what, you could be really good at comedy if you quit drinking. He said, you could be really good at it. And it was really, because deep down inside you felt like you could be good, but to hear it from one of your peers who who really didn't, wasn't trying to get you it was not like a girlfriend saying you got to quit drinking you know or your parents or something it was like one of your peers saying man if you quit drinking you could be really good at what you do and uh that was very appealing to actually fulfill my potential as an entertainer as a comic as a writer you know that was hugely appealing because let's face it you know there's a lot of people who in any kind of field sports and entertainment whatever who you know could have been superstars and they went down a different road and they never fulfilled the potential yeah. on the field or on the on stage or whatever
0: and I just did not want that to happen. I think a lot of people get caught up myself included. I've I've always been a big drinker. Yeah. But uh I get caught up in just having those drinking late Saturday shows be the norm. Yeah. As yeah. opposed to like I did a week in Irvine this like last week. Yeah. Yeah, last week. And I I don't drink because I'm driving back and forth, and I don't drink and drive, and I had fucking monster sets, and I was like, shit, man, you just get lazy, and it's like, and you know, and a lot of it is, a lot of it isn't just the drinking, it's just being hung over the day when you got to do your early Friday show, and there's nothing more depressing than an early Friday show where you're like, where it's a little tighter of a crowd, and yeah. And then you're like and you just feel shitty from Thursday because it's a one show night so I look yeah. at it like a football game. Yeah, yeah. And then and I said to myself, you know, if I want just what you said. And I said if I wanna be if I wanna be the best comic I can be, right. I gotta I gotta focus on the stand up. Yeah. And and you know, I think you get caught up in also people you assume what people think of you and they want you to be a drinker. Yeah.
1: And they want to it's do very hard with you yeah yeah and it's it's hard because it, i mean i don't know about you but it was my identity largely you it's, know you're hanging around with your friends and everybody's in the kind of the same yeah. boat it was it was a, it was really hard to, to quit but man i got out of i went to detox in oh, 87 you went, you went, I, went, I went several times to in 87 i wanted to quit when my when i started going to funerals for people that i that i was hanging out with yeah. and it was not ending well and i was going on a downward spiral. I said, I need to get help, man, because, so I just called a bunch of places. I went in, stayed for three, four days, got out. I never could get, I could never get, like, um, time together. I could never get, like, a week, ten days. I just really? couldn't do it, man. So I said, so the last time I went in, I went into detox at Christmas of 87, and I, I got out, and I moved to New York, and I just started hanging around with people who were doing the same thing. I looked up, I hunted down Colin. Started hanging around with him and uh, just trying to do the right thing and focused on the yeah, work. Colin doesn't drink. Yeah, yeah, he doesn't drink, but and and just focused on the work. You know what I mean? And just focused on the on doing stand up, a catch. And at that time, you know, Seinfeld was there and Rock and you know Dennis Miller. I mean, all, all these Larry David and Roseanne and Brett Butler and Colin and uh, Leary and Hicks and yeah, we were all at that at that time in that scene. And, uh, and those people were, you know, for the most part, were very serious in New York and LA, the people are more serious To my, my impression compared to the Boston scene, they were there for the industry. They were, they made a concerted effort to move to New York or move to LA to do their thing and to try to fulfill their potential in whatever way they want. So that was, uh, and so it was easier to kind of slide in and fit in with people on that, on that level you know
0: Yeah, it Boston always had a had a, like I don't and I, I don't even know where I'd come up with this, but I always felt like Boston had like a hey, this is what we do. Yeah. We go out, we do stand up, we drink all night yeah. for regular people. <laughs> and New York definitely like when I, I when I moved to New York, I definitely was blown away by guys that were like focused, real focused. Yeah. I mean, I I forget I I, I sometimes I think people forget how focused Colin Quinn has been yeah. for as long as he has. Right, I mean he's still in the fucking clubs. Yeah, yeah. And he's doing a lot of what you're doing is yeah. the one man show. Yeah. Yeah, the, yeah. So so your first one's about sobriety and getting sober. Yeah, it was
1: it was uncommon sense and that and yeah, and reenacting a couple of sets on TV and it was it was it was cool, you know, it was just a, a, a great vehicle to do it and I made more money doing it and I was in an atmosphere that was conducive to Creativity, and it didn't have to be bang, 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 bang. You, you know, could did, let it breathe. And yeah, you could let it breathe. Like it wasn't like the Star Search two minute bang, bang, bang. bang, bang. You know, it was like you know this is a thing about homophobia, and this is a thing about racism, and this thing about quitting drinking, this thing about spirituality, and this thing about foreign policy. You know, where
0: do you get this sensibility though? Everyone assumes that Boston's filled with racists. <laughs> like I think everyone thinks everyone always oh, assumes no. that Boston is this like. Dad, Let me no. tell you something. I yeah. just did a Bobby Kelly impression. Yeah. But like but like but, it's not, but you have man. such a you have such a liberal you have such a liberal viewpoint yeah. from a time when being liberal was not popular.
1: Yeah. It it it's not a racist town. I mean, look at this there's prejudice everywhere. You know, it, I agree. You know, I you agree know I mean? wholeheartedly. And but I think the reason part of the reason was when they did forced busing in Boston, it was on the news. And it was on the news just like uh you know just like Little Rock Arkansas when they desegregated the schools there or in with George Wallace and the in the the doorway in Alabama yeah. right preventing black students from going to whatever college it was i forget what it was right now but he was in the or might have been
0: uh, even I think it was high alabama. school huh? I, th- I think it was i want to say it was alabama I, or, or uh, Auburn. I, I i know what you're talking yeah. about though yeah. yeah yeah um and uh
1: you know and that seeps into the national consciousness and And I think that's part of it. Plus, it is a city of when they forced, you know, white neighborhoods to... They were bussing kids from white neighborhoods into black neighborhoods and kids from black neighborhoods into white neighborhoods. And there was resistance. It was like a huge thing. Imagine your kids getting on a bus and going to a strange neighborhood when there's a school two blocks away. Now you got to go to a school, you know, two miles away in a different neighborhood just so there's, you know, racial parity. And, you know, it was... It brought out the worst in a lot of people, a lot of fear. And it was... Intellectually, it's the right thing to do. You want to move the country forward in terms of immigration, but like any policy, when you force it on people, there's resistance. Yeah, and and there was resistance, and so that was on the news all the time. And you know, and but so that's why I think people th- think that about uh, Boston. Not to say there isn't still problems, and I think it comes down to individuals and what's in their own hearts and what their willingness is to uh, to to change their attitudes. You know, I mean, most people go through a lot of changes and what what you might have thought when you were 15 oh. and what you think when you're 45 it might be two two different things around was, race or any of that stuff i was
0: just saying i gotta do a show tonight they do a show where we tell a story and then sing a song with a band behind us and i was trying to talk about like things have changed so much i remember being a fan of jane's addiction and perry farrell said one time that he blew a dude and I, this is back <laughs> When I was in college, when like now you hear that and you're like, whoa, you know, Charlie, whatever, what happens? But in college, I remember hearing that and going, hold. The-. I remember sitting on the couch, like sitting back and go, hold on, I love this guy, I love his music, he blows dudes. How am I gonna reconcile that? Like, but 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 it's it. I mean, things have changed so globally yeah. in like what in acceptance and and where people's heads right. are at. That's right. Same thing with homophobia,
1: man. We do jokes about that growing up, you know. I'm talking about, yeah, I grew up in this extremely homophobic. Anybody here grow up homophobic? Now, you ask an audience that, nobody will admit it. Right. I'm so, saying, wait a second. I'm the only one that grew <laughs> up. Hom- I admit it. I grew up in a neighborhood. You could be considered gay for anything. The slightest deviation from the norm. You got a haircut. What are you, gay? You, know, you didn't get a haircut. What are you, gay? There's a guy in the liquor store wearing sandals. He's obviously a homosexual. <laughs> My idea of gays, right, growing up was that they were out there hiding in the bushes, waiting for me to walk by. They were going to jump out and have sex with me. Yeah. And of course, I get older, actually, got, and you start working theaters, you actually start getting to know, become friends with quite a few gay folks. They yeah. assured me, Jim, the last thing I want to do is hide in the bushes and wait for you to walk by.
0: <laughs> I, I, uh, when I, one of my first jokes I wrote was in college, and I said, and i just recently started telling it because i didn't, i didn't know what i was doing and so i couldn't make get it to work but I, the joke was um i'm not homophobic i'm a homochondriac like, i don't <laughs> care if you're gay i'm afraid one night you'll get me drunk and trick me into it and i'll <laughs> like it that's my fear <laughs> but yeah i think i think uh i think it's really interesting. so so your, where did you go then like what was the progressions of your one man show
1: yeah so i just i did that and you know None of them, and this is embarrassing to say, but none of them have gone to the level of what I wanted to do with Jackie Mason, you know, because, you know, being your own producer and not really knowing how to produce outside of Boston was difficult. So anyway, I took it to L.A., went from the Hasty Pudding Theater to to Los Angeles, did the Coast Playhouse out here, and that was pretty cool in uh, the late 90s. The only thing is we got great reviews. I think... So I, I'm thinking, okay, we sold out all these shows in Boston. The L.A., people will just come out just like they did in Boston. I'll yeah. be able to get on the radio. I'll be getting on local TV. It'll be, a, you know, it'll be, I'll repeat the model, you know. And in L.A., <laughs> you rent the theater. If you're not famous, it's really hard to get people to come out.
0: Oh, my God. You
1: know, and so I had this great theater, the Coast Playhouse. I was there in 98, great reviews, you know, pick of the week and all that sort of stuff and L.A. Times, rave reviews. But it was like twenty, thirty people a night. I stayed there for five months. I kept saying, "I know my people are out there. I yeah. know they're coming." <laughs> they never came. They never collectively came. Never, yeah, you know. But I did that for like, you know, four or five months, and, I, and El Nino hit the same time, and it was so funny because I'm out there and you're in the coast playhouse and they have a tin roof and this rain is just coming down and you can hear the <laughs> rain on the top and there's nothing worse than losing money. It's hard enough to play in front of fourteen people anyway. Yeah. But it's really hard when you're renting a theater and not only are you losing money, but there's 14 people in there and it's raining out and you can hear the raindrops on the tin roof. And and and, and 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 as you get prepared to go out that night to go do the gig, the weather people are going, it's going to rain tonight, don't leave the house. That's the thing about LA, if it's raining, no one goes anywhere. Whatever you do, don't leave the house. And if you do go out, don't go to Tingle Show. Let me tell you something. (laughs) So that was a that was a bitch, but what what came out of that though was good. And this never probably never would have happened if I didn't do that show out there. First of all, got great reviews, got more confidence in the material. But also, I saw an article in the newspaper. I was flying back to Boston to uh do um do a one nighter to get some money because it was like twenty five hundred dollars a week to rent that place at the it's, at the uh, twenty two thousand maybe twenty five hundred at the time the Coast Playhouse yeah. and I was again producing it myself and it, that's the thing about producing it's a risk you know yeah. you don't know if you're gonna and we never got the money back you know we lost money on it but what I did get was uh, I'm leaving there and you know, nice reviews and everything but I'm le- I'm going back and I see this article in USA Today about sixty minutes and sixty minutes. Uh, is doing a new show called 60 Minutes 2 and they're doing it on Wednesday night and they have all the uh, they have all the correspondents they got Mike Wall you know Dan Rather and you know uh, what's his name Scott Pelley who's now in the air there and uh, Bob Simon and they have everybody they need Mike Walls the only person they don't have for the Wednesday show is the Andy Rooney guy they need somebody to do the Andy Rooney spot. Yeah. And they had been putting the feelers out to the industry for months because they were... And I saw the article, and I called Ray Rio, my manager at the time at Prostin and Gray. I said, Ray, send these guys the tape because this is... I'm perfect for this because I've been pitching myself for that type of a commentary. That's what I wanted to do. Yeah. Take these comedy bits that were relevant and social and political and just do them to camera for... To a larger audience. And he sent the tape... And uh, and and I went down. And I got I got the job. I ended up getting the job, and so it was a it, you know the silver lining coming out of that story was basically you know things don't happen the way you think they're going to happen, but. A lot of times they happen completely out of left field. I never could have imagined a break like that in a million years. Didn't you know? It didn't come from management, didn't come from an agent. It came from seeing the article in the newspaper and asking the manager to send him the tape, which he did, and interviewing. And Barry Katz
0: was extremely helpful with that. So I love Barry. Barry's a, Barry's a really yeah. fascinating guy. Yeah, man. He, he really helped a lot with that. is. Yeah. Anyway, so got
1: that gig. And that allows you
0: to do, when you do TV, as you know, you get, then you can... You can just do more. Well what's fascinating about those sixty minute spots was it's one take. Yeah. It was one take. It was I mean, the ones I saw were one take yeah. of you. Yeah. Like a man like man on the street almost. Yeah. But you weren't they weren't chopped up. Right. Which is so I don't think people understand that these days, but like these chop cuts that you see on vlogs and on YouTube of kids putting out their trying to do their Andy Rooney, their yeah. sixty their their sixty minutes Andy Rooney spot. Yeah. Is them editing it over and over, and I, yeah. I watched you do one on uh, on uh, on parking meters, and I yeah. thought to myself, that's one take. Yeah, there's that's that's one yeah. take. I'll tell you what else is what I don't think people understand how impressive this is. Your Harvard uh, commencement speech, yeah, that was murderous. But it's <laughs> like I, I I felt like it was you were just like there was no prompter. There you were just kind of there was riffing. no prompter.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny you say that because the the great thing about sixty minutes was that, you know, it's it's one take, but you gotta like that park and meter routine was yeah. right out of my act, yeah, and then I just did it to camera. The problem and the challenge is, okay, now you got to do two minutes next week yeah and you got to do two minutes the next week and then you got to do two minutes a year from now and it can't you all you act is only so long so you have to write and come up with stuff in a much shorter period of time that is level is that the same thing like you were saying about creating a new hour
0: every year like yeah. louie and bill well and you're doing it by yourself you're not john oliver who has 15 writers yeah who writes a rant for them it, you, yeah, you got to
1: basically come up with it yourself. Yeah, that's the whole trick. Yeah, you know.
0: So anyway, that was a big
1: challenge at sixty minutes. And um, when I got off of that, I did two seasons there, and uh, there were huge, huge break. But um, what I ended up doing is going back to Massachusetts, starting a theater in, in, in Davis Square, Somerville, and uh, I, went, I ended up going back to school after the theater closed after five years, and that's how I got on the the, the, the the com- commencement address.
0: Yeah, you did you got your it was your master's, got a master's degree, yeah,
1: in, in uh public policy, master's of public administration at the Kennedy School of Government, which is a graduate school, yeah, a part of Harvard and uh great school inspiring students. Everybody's there for public policy purposes. You know, you have, like, people from the, the, like, you got special forces and Green Beret people, and you got people that work with, you know, Amnesty International and the NGOs and, the, you know, those people. You got the people from the World Bank. You got CEOs, and they're all in there, and they've all been in their workforce you know, 15, 20 years, they're mid-career people and they're all there to kind of retool and think about what they want to do. Uh, do they want to continue in that? You know, the military guys were all, and women were all being sent by the military to get their you know, bring their education level up. Uh, a lot of companies were sending their CEOs or their people to bring their le- education level up. A lot of people who are going into politics, running for mayor or congress or governor were there to get their public policy credentials. I was there. I grew up in the shadow of Harvard. When I closed the theater after five years, I didn't want to do it anymore. But I always wanted to go back to school because I grew up there. And people kept saying, you should check out the Kennedy School. And I was saying, there's no way I'll get into the Kennedy School. Like, you know. Wasn't a very good college student. I wasn't a good high school student at all. This is like you know the cream of the crop. Yeah. <laughs> but I applied, and the people there knew. Because how old were you at the time? I was um I went I was fifty. Really? Yeah, yeah. Wait, I was back in now? my fifties. I'm fifty nine. I'm sixty. I'm sorry. I'm sixty. <laughs> <laughs> and the great, let me tell you this, Bert. The great thing about going back to school in your fifties, you get the student ID and the senior discount. So it's a, <laughs> it's a beautiful thing but i got to tell you i 'm in there with all these people in their forties, fifties, sixties, and older, and uh it was just inspirational, you know a lot of people from other countries, Palestinians and Israelis in the same classroom getting along yeah. you know people from Africa going back to really challenging situations in in the uh in the uh in the congo and and the, you know in Rwanda and You know, going back to situations where they don't have running water in some of these places. They don't have electricity. They don't have a healthcare system. So my classmates were going back to help improve those countries. There was a girl in my class from South Africa who couldn't go to school with white people in the the 80s before apartheid ended, you know. Really brilliant, brilliant people. And just good people trying to improve
0: the society. All people should go to college in their... It later in life like i believe yeah. like if i went to school now there's so much i want to learn yeah there's so much i care about yeah yeah i didn't care about anything no one died. In college. well not a, no one but yeah you're right it's a different
1: scene but when you go back as an adult i was so motivated and i just loved it and i one of the classes i took and it was a crazy thing to take this i took arts and communication i never studied comedy never studied theater yeah you know so and people are saying why are you taking arts and communication you communicate all the time i said you know what i'd like to actually learn how you <laughs> do it because yeah. i just gotta do it you you start an open mic nights. you don't you know you're trying to get five minutes and you anyway i took it and one of the assignments was to watch the commencement address of steve jobs's commencement address from stanford stanford university yeah. so he he does this great commencement address, very inspiring. I recommend it to your listeners. Just check it out because he's talking about his, you know, he's talking about he's been diagnosed with, um, what did he have? He had some sort of cancer, I think. But, it was we'll it
0: was like brain cancer?
1: pancreatic? Yeah, but whatever it was, you know, he and he was he was telling a story about his own mortality and his life and how he, you know, he was doing his, he was basically doing his his story about how he got where he was and uh, it was beautiful. But anyway. And I asked the professor. I said, "Do they do a commencement address at Harvard?" She goes, "Oh yeah, every year they have a competition for it." I said, "Really?" They said. She goes, "You should enter it, you know." I said, "You think so?" She goes, "Yeah, they, they've had funny ones, you know, in the past there's sometimes." Yeah. So I I just researched. All right, what do you got to do? And I treated it like a set. I had to write. Oh. I write, Wrote a script and go. Here's here's my here's my six minutes. Right. And submitted it, and like 40 other people submitted it from the School of Law and the School of Medicine, and the School of Business, and, and they whittle it down to 20 people and then 10 people, and then you go in and read it for them, then you go in and read it, um, then you're off book, and you recite it to them, and they chose me out of these people, and I... And when I started to develop it, I went just like a set, like I was doing Letterman on The Tonight Show. I went to all the clubs. I go, all right, everybody, (laughs) I'm going to folk clubs.
0: I'm doing the commencement speech at Harvard. Everyone's smart enough for a (laughs) sec.
1: Should've said that. But I'm going in there and that's exactly what I'm doing. I go, folks, I'm doing a commencement address at Harvard in two weeks now. Pretend we're all graduating from Harvard. <laughs> and it's a Thursday morning, right? And so the in the set, you know, in a comedy club, it got some laughs, but not like not oh, like at Harvard. You right? murder Right. But when I did it at the last night, I was telling Barry this on his podcast too. The night before, the two nights before I'm doing the Harvard one, I'm in this cantab lounge. It's a it's a Bar in Central Square, Cambridge, right? It's a gritty bar. They have open mics and blues nights, and yeah, they've been there a hundred years. And it's like one thirty in the morning, and it's open mic blues night, right? So like all these <laughs> blues bands have been on all night, and it's one thirty in the morning. There's like eighteen people left, and ten of them are hammered, you know, and nine are we're in the band, and there's a couple of guys at the bar. I go, all right, it's one thirty. Please welcome Jimmy Tingle. All right, everybody, listen pretend we're all graduating from harvard on thursday morning this guy's at the bar harvard sucks <laughs> but it was so so much fun but i treated it like a set that's why when i got up there i'm like i was never so nervous but i have to tell you i was so nervous when you know it was like you know you're in front of thirty five thousand people and the whole harvard yard is full and it's like oh, they got a you know what do you call it uh What do you call it when they've they've got the big screens all around the campus? So in other schools, they're watching it and everything. The whole commencement address and Judge Suda from the Supreme Court's to my right and Meryl Streep is to my left, you know, (laughs) and
0: all these people, all these Nobel Prize winners are there. And and, everyone's in costume pretty much. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. And everybody's in their gowns and the audience is like all these Harvard professors from going back 50 years and students. It was unbelievable and And they dug it, they loved it, you know, yeah. and I was talking about growing up in the city and my 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 story about you know growing up there and how much it meant to me going to the school, how much it gives you hope about the school gives you hope, and like anything is possible, the people are positive, and that's what I was trying that's the point that I was trying to make in the in the in the speech that you know anything's possible if I can get a if I can you know get a what did I get? A B minus in statistics or whatever at Harvard <laughs> at graduate school. You know, this hopeful
0: world peace. That was, that was my thing. <laughs> the uh my wife and I like cause I think you were Barry thought you were coming in last week. Yeah. And i was like, Oh my God, please. And so my wife and I started watching videos one night. Uh and we watched and my my, my wife was literally just like, Oh my God. The students are laughing as hard as the professors. Yeah, <laughs> and it was like that was like you know it's so it, it's so hard to play yeah. to 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 everyone and get everyone to laugh. Yeah. The only other thing I have to say is like the best w- one of the things that made me rethink comedy was watching your bit about um, about airlines about getting on planes and yeah. and has anyone packed your bags? Anyone yeah. giving you anything? <laughs> What's what really what really blew me out of the water was. So often, people, air, air, airlines, and you, you've been doing stand-up since when airline jokes were, were brand new original. Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> literally. But uh but so many people veer away from material. And what I saw was material that had its own thumbprint on it. Like, your material was so you. It was so, the, I mean, the bit, I, I literally howling laughing when, when you say, that, and then they say, is anyone giving you... Anything to try? Has anyone given you anything in the last twenty four hours? Go, come to think of it, there was a knock at my door last night.
1: Last night, about (laughs) eleven. I'm getting ready to turn in. Doorbell rings, and there stood a man I never met before. And he says to me, Bert, I heard you're flying out in the morning. Why? Why? Yes, I am. Will you carry this on the plane for me? (laughs) Carry this on the plane for you. I don't even know you. What are you going to do for me?
0: Well, I can pack
1: your bags. (laughs) <laughs> well,
0: underwear for mr jimmy yeah <laughs> socks for mr jimmy it's such a, but it was so it was a real definitive look at how the art form itself is simply your voice it's like yeah. so many people could go have, have, have you've heard a joke similar to that where someone just goes you know they just don't put their stamp on it they don't you don't they don't leave their thumbprint on it but you, listening to you do that i went oh shit i'm not working hard enough like that's that is authentic that is watching picasso's Make brush stroke own, right? yeah making it and and people go oh, i have an airline joke yeah but it's not like mine and mine's real and it's brilliant it's like i really kind of sat back and i was like wonder how much material i've dodged or areas i've dodged and not just maybe had the confidence to say Oh, let me just make it mine. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. I think one, one
1: of the hardest things is being willing to fail on stage. And Steve Jobs talks about that in his speech about experimentation. You got to experiment with comedy, you, any new product. Yeah. It's a, a series of. Edison did like 2,500 experiments to yeah. get the light bulb. And he finally, you know, he got it. But it's like so much of it is. Is failure and it sucks to be on stage and not get the laughs and not do well it's just the worst feeling in the world but we got to do it we got to force ourselves and challenge ourselves to do
0: it what do you think you would have done if you hadn't done stand-up um i don't know i don't know what i would have done um do you look back at life and go you know what i really would have enjoyed was like my dad always goes i would have loved to been a teacher yeah and i go really he's yeah. a lawyer yeah and he's like yeah i don't know if i like this
1: yeah You know, I can see teaching. You know, I I was a certified teacher when I got out of school, college. Um, Also, politics. I've always thought about going into politics, but I don't. One of the things I got out of the Kennedy School when I was there—that was one of the reasons I went there. I'm thinking maybe I'll go into politics, but I realized you wouldn't believe how many times in the classroom the name John Stewart would come up, Stephen Colbert, Bill Maher, Leno, Conan, about jokes that people had heard or they had seen or on Saturday Night Live that was addressing the social and political issues of the day in the cultural conversation through entertainment. And I realized, man, there's very few people that have the ability to be on television, be on the radio, be on your podcast with a a social and political point of view. And it's uh, it's a great, great uh, opportunity and and so many of my classmates are immersed in public policy doing great work to, you know trying to f- make the society better in education and healthcare and everything but they are very rarely on television very rarely on the radio very rarely on a podcast you know so it's a great opportunity so what i'm trying to do now is use entertainment
0: for purposes beyond entertainment yeah. that's why i'm trying to i'm trying, you've got yeah. the you've got the you've got the uh not not nonprofit it's uh, a Humor for Humanity. Humor for, yeah. hu- no, what is that? Well, what it is is, I'll give you the pitch, all right? Okay. <laughs> humor for Humanity, more than
1: entertainment, raising spirits, funds, and awareness for nonprofits, charities, and social causes. Our mission is your mission, humor for humanity, humor in helping, humor in healing, humor in hope, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> <laughs> and I came up with it at the Kennedy School because I figured I want to do, you know, I want to have some sort of, a social contribution but using entertainment to do it. And so the model is still being worked out, but it's basically a way to... I'm going to start my own podcast. That's why I'm so grateful for you having me on. No, this of course, is an awesome setup. I want to start my own about humor for humanity and and have entertainers. And I'd love you to come on. mine I'd love to. at some time when you're playing Boston and maybe talk about maybe one of the nonprofits that you support. Uh, one
0: I'm, of a the t- of, uh, I'm a big fan of I'm a big fan of Operation Smile. Mm-hmm. I think it's Operation Smile mm-hmm. and uh, St. Jude.
1: Yeah. I'd love to come on and talk about that and yeah. maybe
0: just raise that
1: awareness because a lot of the nonprofits they're all you know they're all struggling for stuff, you know. Yeah. Anyway, that's it's just a contribution I'd like to do my own podcast, maybe my own TV show around that and uh and interview people. And so that's like what I can do, you know, as a as a performer and a, as a comic and uh make it funny but
0: interesting and hopefully have some some uh follow-up calls to action with it. It'd be cool if you could get comics uh, if if you could, almost like uh, get comics to do on their weekends, do an extra show, like do a, yeah. one more Sunday night show, yeah, and they donate that to donate the proceeds to charity, right? Like uh, like make it c- across the board where it's like the you know Sunday. If you want to do one more thing, it's just a f- it's a fun show. If people want to come out, they – you know something. Yeah, there, I always feel like there's. I I sometimes get caught up in going. I want to help. How do I help? Yeah. You know, like we did a a thing, a benefit when I was in Montreal for people. I don't think it was in hospice, um, but people dealing with cancer. Mm -hmm. And uh, you get they t- they give you the call and, yeah. and it was zoe friedman bud's daughter yeah uh was the one i think that reached out to me and i of course i'm like oh yeah of course but then it starts leading up to it you start getting nervous just like well shit what material am i gonna do yeah. like and then she's like don't worry about it just have a good time and then you get out and it was like me alonzo bowden jimmy carr uh gina uh yeah sharon and like it was a bunch of strong acts yeah and, yeah and i was like whoa shit yeah and then i'm like i watch everyone destroy and i'm like all right now I gotta do good. And <laughs> it's, it's so stressful. But yeah. I think a lot of guys would do more if they just had if it, if it's made easy yeah. in a weird way. I think a lot of guys would like to try to help out. Yeah. What um what now how does your stand up differ these days when you when you say you're doing you're doing the Wilbur New Year's Eve, correct? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You're doing the Wilbur New Year's Eve. Do you do stand up? Do you do more of a one man show? Do you do a hybrid?
1: Yeah, I do a hybrid. And and because it's New Year's Eve, people are in the mood that, you know, yeah. it's gonna be a lot of things that happen this year, you know. Oh, kind for, of like a recap. A little bit, yeah. But also older material, you know, um you know, I mean stuff that works and that's relevant, you know, for example I mean, guns are in the news, and I have gun bits oh my going God. back years. You've
0: got gun bits, yeah, from you know, back,
1: yeah, yeah. And so, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. But also stuff on, you know, what's happening this year, and I have stuff on immigration back in the day that's still relevant. And oh, so making making the <laughs> making things fresh because what you realize is you stick around long enough, the same issues come up and up and up, yeah. over and over again, and they a lot of them don't go away, unfortunately. So, but to make it new, make it fresh and uh and be funny that's the thing it's like woody allen said if i if i make people laugh that's great with my movies if i make them think that's that's tremendous but if i make them laugh and think that's fantastic but yeah. if i just make them think i'm in trouble so what do you think about donald trump <laughs> what what do i think about donald trump i think he's hitting the nerve with a lot of disaffected people and uh i think a lot of it is um is false what he's saying there was a big article in the times the sunday times new york times and they they did a a survey of the the presidential candidates and whether or not they were accurate their statements and donald trump's 76 percent of the statements he's made are inaccurate 76 percent yeah check out really? the sunday's times yeah And um, I'm and So, you know, they're false statements, but people say it all the time on television. People say things that aren't true all the time. They imply they infer, you know, like "Uh, the Democrats just want to let the illegal aliens across the border. They just welcome them in here, you know, and that's like not true. But people say it all the time or they say the Republicans want to, you know, destroy Medicare or whatever it is, Social Security. And it's not true, but people say it all the time and there's no consequences for it. And uh, anyway, so Ben Carson had 80% of his statements were false, according to this PolitiFact. Really? Yes. It's in the Sunday Times in the, um, it's like, it used to be called the Weekend Review section. It's called, uh, I forget what it's called now. But anyway, it was in yesterday's Times. And... Uh, uh Hillary was at twenty eight percent. Bill and Hillary, like, with the least, least, the, the most honest out of the, <laughs> and that was still at twenty four percent or whatever. Yeah. So that's saying that's, and I want to know, like, if my side is like bullshitting me about something, I want to know about it. You know, yeah. I don't want to be like just taken to the hoop. You know, of, um, you know, because I'm gonna, I, I try to help where I can. You know, Obama, I think was at twenty six percent of his statements were wow. incorrect. Um, and some of it is just you misspeak, but some of it's deliberate, you know, and some of it's deliberate um but Trump with his walk you know I'm gonna build a beautiful wall with a big gate across the southern border. My point is, when you build a wall across the southern border, guess what people will go around the wall, okay, yeah. <laughs> so you got all these you know drug human traffickers,
0: drug dealers, gun runners, whatever Wait, was it you that had the joke about uh about uh art picking lettuce, yeah. <laughs> That
1: was from Conan back in the day.
0: That was back in the day. It, it, the, the, uh, the bit was there. Ladies and gentlemen, they're doing triathlons to get here yeah. at night. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Actually, you look at the risk these people take to sneak into the country. They're doing a triathlon in the dark just to pick lettuce. Think about that. Walk the desert, swim the river, run across the border. First 10,000 get to pick some lettuce. And people say, we can't let these people in. They're taking all of our jobs. What? Are they taking our jobs or are they doing our jobs? When's the last time an American citizen went for a job picking lettuce? Oh, I've never really been happy here at the bank <laughs> all these years cooped up in this air-conditioned office how i've longed for migrant work
0: yeah.
1: what i'd give to be out in the fields of arizona when it's 100 190 degrees rip off my shirt down on my hands and my knees picking a little lettuce but can i know the mexicans get all the good jobs <laughs> that is so but that was i did that on conan in like 98 and it's still relevant
0: it's, and that's what i mean it's about even things. almost more relevant now
1: yeah it's more of an issue it's, it's more, more of an issue burner.
0: gun control uh immigration i think they've they've really i mean it's it's fascinating to me how all that stuff is cyclical yeah it feels like i bet you could write theoretically you could write one act about everything and then just wait five years and redo it again <laughs> and be like oh this is all brand new I mean, you could destroy hey Twitter. that's a good idea Bert. <laughs>
1: <laughs> this man is unbelievable known of one-man shows
0: <laughs> <laughs> and i'm back everybody <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh that would be fun so real quick i i know I'm, yeah, i've yeah. had you on for thank you over so an much hour, for but, having me on but man. i wanted to I, I wanted to one of you know one of my obviously I, I'm a besides being a comic I'm such a massive fan of comedy in general yeah. I th- I feel like I've like I love I love being a part of the, the, the organization. Yeah, the subculture is one of my favorite things, mm-hmm. and just talking shop about comics. So if if I can, I'll run through a list of comics. Just sure. give me w- first word that and comes to ju- mind.
1: Sure, but just understand, I might not know who they are. No, no,
0: no, 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 no. It'll be it'll be a mix. My up. wife
1: knows more about entertainment than I do. She's like, I come home, she'll be watching, you know, the best shows on HBO and stuff. I go, yeah. I can't believe you're watching all this violence. I'm going up the stairs to watch the real news. Yeah, it's <laughs> just more horrifying than anything you can make up man. yeah
0: no it'll be it'll be a mix of guys mostly from yeah from your scene and then some just boston yeah. guys but let me just ask you how long have you been doing it
1: 16 years 16 nice yeah. that's a good time so you started yeah. in what uh uh 90
0: i started in, no 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 I started in 97 97 no 98? no 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 you started in, i'm sorry you started in 2000 yeah oh no okay. i guess i've been doing it longer yeah i started in 98 Okay. So Ooh. I was 26. Good. That's the only way I could That's do about the math. how old I was yeah. when I started. Yeah. yeah. I was 26. I'd got graduated I'd left college. Yep. Yeah. Um I ended up graduating in New York having to take correspondence classes. And uh and I had I had a bunch of hubris about about me. Because I'd been written up in Rolling Stone as the number one party animal in the country. So I thought wow. it was like a big <laughs> six and a half page article. So I felt like I deserved stage time, even uh-huh. though I'd only done it once. Uh-huh. So I moved to New York and then started working the door at Barry's Club. And then, no, you Boston Comedy Club. Boston Comedy yeah. Club. And I did that for about a year. I got a deal six months into doing stand-up. Wow. Through uh, Will Smith. Wow. And then moved out here and I started going back and forth for a while. Then got a TV show out here and then... Just started touring. Uh, toured with, uh, when I was first started out, I worked with Jay Moore a lot. Yep. And then st- just started doing The Road, myself headlining. I guess I've been headlining for 11 years. Uh, my daughter's 11, and I only know that because when she was born, I started getting gigs at the Laugh Stop in Houston. Did you ever do Laugh Stop? No. Houston and Laugh Stop was great. It was Bill Hicks's club. Yeah. It was the best. And uh, so I've been headlining for 11 years. And, uh, but yeah, I've been in it. It's great. It's been, yeah, it's, it's, I just was talking with, uh, with Joe Rogan this week about, about, uh, I caught half your podcast. With it was Joe. awesome. I was pretty yeah. fucking out of it. It was good. That was a, it was really it was, good.
1: And I have to tell you, I don't even know, like when Barry said, come out and do my podcast, I'm saying, all right, I got to catch up on the podcast. Oh. Like, what are people doing? You know? So I was listening to Joe. I listened to, uh, you, I was listening to, um, Uh, Bill. You know Burr, oh, yeah. his and him and Joe had a nice conversation. Like two hours. I'm like, oh, oh Joe, my when God. you do Joe's, it's
0: three hours. Wow, it's three I hours. Believe it. It was all over two hours. Yeah. Oh yeah. We, we when you do Joe, I, I like to keep mine in, yeah. in the in the hour plus. Yeah. That's cool. I want to go over an hour always, but I don't. Yeah. Like anywhere around two hours, I'm afraid. I mean, I know people love it when they're three hours. Really. But yeah, like Stanhope and I did. You know Doug Stanhope. Yeah, I know who he is. Stanhope and I did five hours. Wow. But it was it was it was I mean it was I we had we had. Met a few times. Yeah, lunch. The first time. <laughs> we, no, we sat out here and had drinks. Yeah, and we drank for five hours. <laughs> we only stopped to go have dinner with my family. Yeah, and then come back and redo the and wow. and it, but it it uh you know I liked I I personally yeah. feel like if when I start doing five hours the conversation meanders so much yeah. that that but Joe's focused Joe yeah. Joe's he's been he's one of the godfathers of podcasting right so he knows I mean, he goes there and he it's a great three-hour conversation it's like but i mean one of the reasons i have my podcast honestly is so i get to hang out with guys like you yeah you know i wouldn't get the opportunity if we were at a club there would be no there would be no reason for us to other than me going hey jimmy do you mind if i pull your ear for a little bit and ask you a few questions yeah which all comics are accommodating to but even still you'd be like yeah you know what i'm i gotta get home yeah i'm done i did my set i'm Mm -hmm. tired do you like doing it the podcast i do I'm, i'm redefining how long you been doing it uh two years wow I've been doing 2 years uh at the behest of Rogan. Rogan was like, "Man, get your own podcast. Do yeah. your own podcast." And uh and I started doing it and and it, it just helps people. It really focuses your fan base and gets them to the clubs. Yeah. And then they and and you it and you develop skills, well, interview the, skills. The two things. Well, for me my interview skills are horrible. I always bring things back to me. I always That's I, all right. I'm I'm like egocentric <laughs> in that way. Like I always want to tell you my story. Yeah. Um Right now, my focus is my podcast and my vlog. I'm I'm really obsessed with vlogging. And it, how's that working? The uh, vlog probably is that? the uh, a vlog. The only problem with vlog is I just keep a cam- that camera right there with me. Okay. I take it with me, and I when I do stuff like if I'm going to do podcasts, I'll bring it with me and I'll shoot the podcast and I'll kind of film my day. December, I've been focusing on weight loss. I've been partying pretty hard for like a year. Yeah, doing on the road, and so defem- December first, I was like, um, I'm home. I'm getting healthy. I can yeah. drink if I want to drink, yeah. but for the most part, it is like focused on losing weight. I was two fifty five. Wow, and I'm I'm two thirty nine right now. So that's only in that's like, good though. Yeah, it's like two Ta- in two weeks. Three. That's week good. Ten half. pounds more than ten. Seventeen. Seventeen pounds. Good yeah. for you. So, uh, but but I'm, how
1: long is a vlog? It's like I'm, so.
0: I, well, I I edit them down to like six minutes. Okay, but I do all the editing. I do the I post it. I'm a little bit. And of And right? it's, it's not stand up, right? It's not stand up. Although I'll bring it with me if I do stand up. Yeah, and I'll shoot like hanging out at the club afterwards, talking to comics. I, like I'm doing the show okay. tonight, and I'll bring my vlog camera with me and show backstage, show a little bit of my show. But for the most part, it's it's most part it it's what it's what Bill's doing on his podcast, the Monday Morning Podcast, mm-hmm. was genius. Is why be necessitate on guests just do himself mm-hmm. and so and so i thought well what's the best way to facilitate that for me is a vlog where it's just me i don't need i can put out a product two people that want to watch it and i'm the only one that needs to make it i need i can make it by myself in here it would be really great for you mm-hmm. especially like like it, it you could do commentary then. commentary you could yeah. do what you did on 60 minutes yeah. and do like two minute clips and put them up and it, and the more like if you get on it, you're like I'm going to do them twice a week, and you put them up every day. People look forward to it. I well, look forward Where do forward you post them? It. Just on I post them, them on YouTube. On YouTube. I just post them on YouTube, and then. But how do you get
1: it out? What do you mean? How do you distribute it? I, I mean, po- once it's up there, it's just. Once
0: it's up there, uh, you get subscribers to your YouTube page. I put it on Twitter, and then people go to Twitter or Facebook and they see that oh, there's a new one, oh. and they click. What What ideally you want to do is get into the place where people are excited for your vlog, and they're checking every day. Like I, I check. A couple people's vlogs every day, where I go, oh, I wonder what he did yesterday. Cool. And click it. These guys do daily vlogs, but th- the podcast for me really kind of is a great way to f- to centralize your fan base. And so when you have a product coming out, like I wrote a book, I I go, hey guys, my book's coming out. Pre-order my book, and then is that I, already out? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I gotta like, get it, man. Right, here, I gotta get it. I'll give it to you. All right, all right, Bert. Here, let's make sure I didn't. Oh, there's a sticker in it there's stickers all in this book <laughs> <laughs> my daughters um, but yeah here this is my book wow it's uh, Life of the Party it's all my crazy stories thank you um, yeah take, it's It's I, I I I pit it as like uh, I, my favorite author was Ernest Hemingway yeah and so I, all I wanted when people read it was to laugh and to they'd be like hey man that was a really easy read yeah. <laughs> so when I first time read Ernest Hemingway I was like seemed like an easy book to read like I didn't get I, I enjoyed it I yeah. got through it but uh but yeah that's uh cool man you have to sign it to me yeah before i leave please and uh and and like i said i'll 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 post it at the beginning of the show
1: but this is so this is so exciting because comics have the opportunity to have their own podcast their own vlogs yeah write their own books yeah and you don't necessarily have to be on television to do it you don't need any and that's what you were asking earlier about like what's different one of the things that's different is there's not just the gatekeepers. I mean, the gatekeepers because of the technology, there are no gatekeepers. If you can figure out how to do a podcast or a, a vlog or whatever, you can, you can, you can participate.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's amazing to think that, you know, I it, it, I've seen how much has changed in my lifetime. Yeah. From when you, when you had you had to go to Montreal to get a deal, mm-hmm. and you had to get a deal to be taken serious, and you had to be. In LA, like, nowadays, it's like, I, I, I travel with with what would have been $15 million worth of equipment in, when I started comedy. Yeah. I have my own v- podcast, my own vlog. I put it all on YouTube. I have, I'm doing an interview with someone that literally, and I can put a number on it, a 100,000 people, when I post this, are going to go... Shut the fuck up! What did Bert and Jimmy talk about, and, and that will download it immediately? And really? It, oh yeah! And so that for me, hello everybody. <laughs> I thought it was just me and Bert. But you, but like Tingle dot com. <laughs> I got a vlog coming out, brother, <laughs> and a podcast. I mean, with the people you know, if you if you started a podcast, and you, do you live in New York or Boston now? Boston. It, you start a podcast, especially guys coming into Boston that are coming to play Boston like like, yeah. like a Bill Burr who would gladly sit down with you for an hour and talk. Yeah. I mean, you could, it would be, you know. I be mean, fun. I, I, I always suggest people to do it. Yeah. It's worth trying. Like when I started my vlog, I was getting 2,000 uh, downloads of a vlog, and it was a lot of effort for 2,000. And then I did one with Rogan. I, I did Rogan's podcast, and I put the vlog up there. And I had uh, and that one got like eight thousand. How how long was it when you put it up there? Six six minutes. Six minutes of your conversation. No no no. Joe, it's oh. Just uh, I'll show you when we okay, get done. I'll okay. show you. Right. I'll show you what a vlog looks like. Yeah, I yeah. just posted one today, um, and then I'm editing the next one. That's the only problem. I wish I didn't do all the work. Yeah. But once again, it's neat to know that I can do all the work. But it just. You know, Mark Marin, he had the president
1: in his garage on his thing, and he goes, and I saw him being interviewed, and he goes, I don't know how the hell it works. I have a guy who helps me. He goes, I can't even upload yeah. it to iTunes. I don't even know how it works.
0: He edits it and gets oh, it up there. You know, Maron was one of the first ones I listened to. Maron was one yeah. of the first podcasts I listened to where Great. I was like, it was him and Stanhope talking, and then he had Janine Garofalo on, and I was like, I was on a plane. I was like, get the fuck out. I get to have Mark Marin. In my ear with Janine Garofalo. That's it's right. like they're sitting next to me and I get to eavesdrop. Yeah. And I, that was – I, I did not know what a podcast was and yeah. I was like – I mean I knew what it was yeah, but yeah. I was like I hadn't seen or heard of a really good one. I just turned my wife on to podcasts because we did one last week. Her book club came over. They had read a book I had happened to read and I said, ooh, let's podcast your book club and I'll be a part of it and we'll talk about this book about yeah. public shaming. Yeah. And so my wife now is obsessed with podcasting.
1: And that so- must have helped that book
0: a lot. Oh, well, it's, it's a pretty big It book. must have been a bit, Yeah, but it's, it must have been a big boon for the book. Uh, I don't know if anyone listened to the podcast, to be honest yeah. with you. Yeah. Uh, only because it's not like... People will listen to this because they come to this podcast for... Mostly for me to hang out with comics. Yeah. So when I don't have comics on, sometimes they kind of... My, my fans will go, uh, I don't know who that is. And uh, you know how
1: many people listened. Oh, with, yeah, you yeah. You I get, get all my numbers. Analytics. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I get all my numbers. I'm it, Total downloads is... Uh, well up in the millions. You're so kidding it, me. Yeah, no. Okay,
1: Wilbur Theater, New Year's <laughs> Eve, everybody. Wilbur Theater, New Year's Eve, jimmytingle.com.
0: <laughs> Those, yeah, like, you can, you, I can look from all, I think I put out 140 podcasts. I can look at all the numbers for all of them, and it adds up, you know, well into the millions. It's it's, it's, it's really fascinating to find out. That must have blown you away. No. It's well, it- it's, it's been a build. It's, you yeah. know, the first time when I put the podcast up, I had, do you, do you know who Joey Diaz is? Yeah. I had Joey Diaz on. Yeah. And he literally destroyed from beginning to end with my dad. It was my dad and Joey Diaz and me and Tom Segura. Wow. And that I mean, I when I watched the numbers shoot up, it was like But he has the, his own. The first day it was like seventy thousand people listened to it. And I was like, Holy <laughs> shit. That must be unbelievable. And then and then I'm just watching these numbers <laughs> climb and I'm like, like, you've got to be fucking kidding me. <laughs> And then and then I had Joey Diaz come I had him one you know oh cuz we're God. friends yeah. our families are friends he comes over one Easter and I got the podcasting stuff set up in the in the man cave and Joey says turn it on let's do a podcast dog so my dad's here again and Joey gives my dad edible marijuana oh. and my dad starts <laughs> is high now and then oh my Joe, and God. and that podcast skyrocketed the one with Stan Hope is massive Greg Fitzsimmons is a is yeah. huge. I gotta give Greg a call. Yeah. Give, oh, yeah. Greg. I was just with Greg the other night. Yeah. He is. I'm, I Another think I'm Boston gonna have. Guy, I'm gonna. Yeah. T- I'm, t- I'm t- trying to get Greg to see if he would help me vet my hour to kind of look at it and see where I'm lazy, where I'm sloppy, where my bad habits Stand are. Stand up. Yeah. I mean. Yeah. Do an hour this coming year, and I and I want it It's for a special, to, or is no. it just you want to just? Oh do no, an hour. it's for a special. Yeah. Yeah. Doing a special, we don't know. Is it for Netflix? Uh, we don't know where it's going to be yet yeah. cuz it's we're kind of in negotiations in right. a couple places right but um but they look at your numbers right for your podcast for your vlog yeah they do that with but, the book too I, but, but but i, but I mean
1: for, to determine whether or not they'll license it right uh yeah you, yeah uh, but you know it's, it doesn't
0: it doesn't i don't know if podcasting numbers totally translate into television numbers mm-hmm. only because you know there's a lot of people i listen to on podcasts but i don't really like i'm like yeah but that's because it's one of my things that I like. Yeah. So it's in my hand. Yeah. I, I say it's like a three-point shot with your thumb. You're in my hand. Yeah. I, I, when I'm looking for that entertainment in that way, like on a plane or uh, or working out, you're my podcast guy. I don't always follow my people I listen to podcasts into their next venture. Right. You know? Yeah, yeah. It's And, and I think likewise for me, people that listen to my podcast don't always watch my TV show. But, and People that watch my TV show have no idea of a podcast do they come to the clubs when you work uh when you go when you two travel? different groups really the podcast people come and the people that watch the tv show but my tv show has always been you know family friendly yeah and my stand-up's not yeah and my podcast's not yeah and then now this vlog's like a a mashup of both and it's a brand new set of viewer watching the vlog who listens to the podcast who it's it really wow. is a it, it is an interesting time i wish i, I really only wish i was 10 years younger because because <laughs> now that i'm like i wish i had done this 10 years ago yeah like yeah. but but it's, it's great man yeah it's really been fun so let's go through i'll, I'll okay sure, a sure bunch of comics and just first thing that comes to mind all right because I, I, I these are the things that i feel like will be the uh the viral clip okay this is i'll put this in my vlog all right so um barry Cremens, barry Cremens,
1: mentor founded the Ding Ho, uh Great guy, and I wish him all the success in the world with his new film. It's yeah. awesome. And Goldthwaite is a good man. For what making about Bobcat? Bobcat, same thing. Bobcat, we started together. We did a comedy competition in 1982. Me, him, and Dennis Leary. Bobcat won the hundred dollars. This was in Newport, Newport, Rhode Island, right? It was a three. The Bobcat won the hundred dollars. Uh, I came in. Uh, some kid that juggled came in second. I came in third, and Dennis, I feel bad for me, didn't place. <laughs>
0: Den- <laughs> what about Dennis Leary? He didn't play. Said no, that. what, what, do, you, what do you think about Dennis Leary,
1: good dude. I just saw his, um, uh, what do they call Comics Come Home. I went to, we were talking about doing charity stuff. They've raised, I think it was $30 million over the last 19 years doing his, that Comics Come Home. The Cam Neely. It was at the yeah. Cam Neely thing. It was at the uh, Fleet Center. It was awesome. Uh, Louis was there. I mean, you know my hat's off to him he's done his own thing he's done his own t v shows he's uh he's a um, you know he's worked he's worked it he learned how to do it at Emerson. he did it in stand up and then he took it to another level with his t v show and then he's given back with his charity so it's pretty awesome. Wow, yeah now, did you know uh Dane Cook? I don't know Dane that well um but I'm glad for his success. I know uh, i i this is funny, but the I hadn't seen Barry in years, and Barry was in boston in i guess it was 2005 maybe 2006 and i called him up i said barry dane cook i didn't even see him before i had never seen him work he sold out two shows at the fleet center i go how the hell did he do that (laughs) he goes no paid advertisement right and i'm like running this little theater with 200 seats i'm busting my ass to get people in there go how the hell did dane cook it sold out two shows He goes, i'll tell you about it and obviously he 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 caught the wave with social media early on MySpace putting clips out there, giving mater- you know giving the stuff away, and was way ahead of the game in terms of he, that. He
0: he he's a very inspirational dude in the way yeah. he looks at this business, the way he looks at himself, and the way he looks at everything. And one of the things that I that is is kind of notable in the in similarities between the two of you is he invests in himself. Yeah. He if he's going to do his thing, he puts his own money behind him. Yeah, he bets on himself just like you do with these theaters, and it's yeah. It's, I mean, and you, and it's, you know,
1: it's a risk. It's a risk, but you got to. They, they say, you know, in show business, never use your own money. Well, if I never used my own money, I never would have got a one man show off the ground, and I yeah. never would have been able to do half the things I've been able to do. That's crazy, Stephen Wright. Steve Wright, talk about inspiration, completely unique. uh You know, when the uh, Peter Lasally, the comedy producer for the Tonight Show at the time in the early eighties came to the Ding Ho. I was the daytime bartender. I gave him directions. His daughter was going to his daughter was going to Emerson. Yeah. And he had read this article in the LA Times about all these Irish Catholic comedians in Boston. So he set up an interview. I mean he set up an audition and they got the top ten guys in Boston and uh, Steve Wright was on the bill, and Peter LaSalle calls the ding home. He goes, "Yes, I'm Peter LaSalle from the Tonight Show. I'm coming there tonight. How do I get there?" I go, "Okay, Mr. LaSalle, what you do is you drive down Cambridge Street, you go through uh, Leachmere Square, you go through Emmons Square. When you get to Emmons Square, you take a right on Springfield Street, go in the back, <laughs> <you> go around <laughs> the, in the parking lot, and that's the that's the parking lot. But anyway, he saw Stephen Wright, and the next the next night he put him on the Tonight Show, or two days later, put him really? on the Tonight Show from this." Chinese restaurant, the back room of a Chinese restaurant with this decor right here, right? Yeah. <laughs> the back room of the Chinese restaurant, Niman Square, Cambridge, put him on the Tonight Show in two days, two days later, and then put him on again the next night because Johnny was so blown away. Oh, shit. So Wright put us on the map in Boston largely. He was, uh, and we all watched it when it was on, you know, was we're all in the back room watching Steve Wright kill on the Tonight Show. And yeah. he sat down, and Johnny says to him, So you come from Boston, not a lot of comics from Boston. And Wright looks at him and goes, you know, well, there's some really good ones and uh, they're all here with me tonight. And we went fucking crazy. <laughs> <laughs> we went crazy. <laughs> Lenny Clark. Lenny, the lion. <laughs> Lenny was the lion in Boston. He was the, uh, you know, he drove the bus. He drove the train l- largely in that in that town. Uh he broke broke down a lot of doors he made it safe for people to go on stage in a lot of ways because it was rough and there was no there were no rules and you'd have you know you have the neighborhood people and he took charge of the he took charge of the audience and um hecklers was like a big thing everybody was petrified of hecklers and he fucking you know him and Kremens would just chew them up and spit them out and uh you know he was an inspiration to me because I I went to the same high school as Lenny and if it wasn't for Cl- Lenny I might not have ever done stand-up, honestly, because he he was, uh, I, I grew up two blocks from the Ding Ho, and he was um, hosting a Wednesday night, open mic night, and I had heard about it, and I said, Lenny, you know, and this was like unheard of back then, you know, yeah. no one was doing comedy, I said, Lenny, could I come down, he goes, yeah, anybody can come down, come on, come on, come the fuck down, come on, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I did, and he put me on, and, uh, I started closing his show because I had a very high power rack when I first started. I played harmonica. You know, I did the Test 2 Baby Blues, Thank God I'm a City Boy, Thank God I'm a Burbite, the pooper Scoopa Blues. I come on stage with a trench coat, a hat, sunglasses. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, lovers, faggots, fuckers, Republicans, Democrats, intellectuals, marine biologists, cocksuckers, and thieves. My name is Jim. <laughs> and I would, do this, I would do this rap poetry and stuff. I'm a Test 2 Baby, that's why I got the blues. Was a man-made mutation, scientifically abused i was the miracle of the laboratory how come i never made 60 minutes or even the news <laughs> <laughs> oh shut yeah. up yeah yeah and we had fun you know yeah so no one's would, following that <laughs> no no I our this show yeah. it was like one in the morning it was one of those shows that they had all kinds of people they had one guy this guy mr Myway, would come in and he would and he he would drive an ice cream truck and people would bite his he wanted people to bite his elbow and it was crazy it was open mic night it was it was crazy but anyway so lenny was a was a friend and is a friend and uh an inspiration like i said i might not have ever done it if it wasn't for him or- and
0: barry carmen start in that place well last name and i only say this because he is he's he's the guy who put us together barry cats
1: barry cats man you know when i was uh in the throes
0: of uh you know in a very
1: low spot in uh in my career or in my life because of drinking and I was doing crack, Barry's Room played against Sam's and I was acting up and I was on stage and I was fucking hammered and I was throwing plates around like there were Frisbees you know these like crowded room you know yeah And Barry's talking to me after. He goes, Jimmy, man, you're fucking killing yourself. You know, you could be a really good comic. And, you know, and my girlfriend at the time was going, listen to Barry. Listen to what he's saying. He's trying to help you, you fucking idiot. (laughs) And, you know, you're trying to get through this alcoholic haze, you know. But it really resonated because he, he cared enough. And, he, you know, I always loved Barry. I got along with him all the time. We started together when he was doing Popeye, the Sailor Man, having orgasms. When he was doing <laughs> impressions, when he started as a comic, he's doing Popeye having an orgasm. That was, his, you know, his first five minutes.
0: I, I, this is the guy that I let vet my set before I did <laughs> television. But I have to tell you,
1: man, he, he had a he had a big heart, and I'm working with him again. It's a I'm psyched to be working with him, but he really did. He reached out and he uh, tried to help somebody, you know, and he, I was that guy. And, you know, I eventually ended up doing that detox route and trying to get clean. And it's been the best thing, man. It's been the best thing. I recommend it to anybody out there who wants to get better. If you're having a bad, if you feel like your life sucks and a booze has something to do with it, there is a way to get better, yeah. you know, and there is help and there's w- lots of, places to get help these days from, uh, from alcohol or drugs. And that's one of the things I want to try to continue working with, with Humor for Humanity, trying to you know, carry that message. And that's why I was in the Billerica House of Corrections <laughs> like two months ago doing, I think I told you that, right, yeah, yeah, earlier yeah, on? Yeah. yeah, I was doing it, I'm telling these inmates, I said, you guys can get sober, and, and if you do, not only are you helping you, but you're helping your kids, you're helping your family. There's yeah. a, like a residual effect when you, you know, because now you're responsible, and now you can work, and uh, and you're asking these inmates, what's the number one thing you want? And guys are saying, a ride home, you know? Yeah. They're like literally they got no job, they got nothing, Most most of them in there, 80% of the inmates are there for alcohol and drug-related crimes, you know. So it, it's a huge problem, but there's also tremendous amount of hope and a lot of help out there for people who want it. Well, uh, Jimmy, I want to thank you. This has been a blast, man. Thank you, brother. And, and I want to tell you one thing. Can I give you one more name? Please. About 10 years ago, I did a, a fundraiser with Archbishop Desmond Tutu, right? Holy the, shit. The, the, the Nobel Prize winner from yeah. South Africa. He was the spiritual force. He organized the churches. The whole time Mandela was in prison, he was the spiritual force organizing the churches in south africa in the 80s and 90s so i do this fundraising the reason i say this cuz you're talking about the airport security bit and yeah. one of the bits in the airport security is you know the, they're asking you the questions. You know, did anybody give you anything to bring onto the plane? Did you pack your bags yourself? Yeah. And of course, in the show, I'm saying, no, I didn't pack them. A stranger from the Middle East packed them, right? Yeah. I could not believe he knew exactly what to bring. Toothbrush from Mr. Jimmy. Yeah. Anyway, so, anyway, so I'm hosting this. I'm um, the MC, and Archbishop Desmond Tutu is the. This keynote speaker, and this is AIDS benefit and AIDS benefit in Boston, so I got to sit at the head table with him, talk to him, asking him about Mandela, asking him about apartheid. He was a big fan of Hillary Clinton. He was saying he was a big fan of Bill. Anyway, so after the show. I get off stage, and I'm, I'm going up to my room, and I got my bags. And I'm with my wife at the time, and my wife's still, Catherine. Love you, honey. Anyway, <laughs> I get on the elevator with my bags. Who comes in the elevator? But Archbishop Desmond Tutu. And he looks at me, and he goes, hey, he goes, did you pack your bag yourself? <laughs> <laughs> did, you, did you pack them yourself? <laughs> Funny bastard he is. Oh, shit.
0: Well, oh, I got a lot of work to This do. I got a lot of so work much to do. Imagine. Fun being over here, so So I got a thank Desmond so much, Tutu Chris. story.
1: Yeah, you got a Desmond Tutu story. Jimmy, He's the best.
0: You. Thank you, man. Thank you. thank you. This episode was brought to you by The Machine.